Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Life Wisdom Podcast, a special podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Francis Xavier Clooney. Uh, He is the Parkman Professor of Divinity and Professor of Comparative Theology at uh, Harvard Divinity School. Uh, He's also an ordained Jesuit priest, and between his scholarship and his time on this planet and his work with profound theological texts, I have no doubt he has many a kernel of wisdom to share, and also I've had the great pleasure of speaking with him on new books in Hindu studies about his work. So Frank, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Raj. I'm um, delighted to be with you and delighted actually to be back since we did a a different uh, conversation a few months ago. So it's really nice to talk to you again. Yes, likewise. So why don't you share with the readers maybe some of your your recent work and and, and sort of the thrust to get a sense of the kinds of things uh, you're thinking about? Well, in, you know, when you mentioned that, um, this series can deal with kind of the interlapping between the the personal and the scholarly, the you know the practitioner and the the research scholar and the like. It was an occasion for me to make a link with what I've been thinking about anyway in terms of my recent work. So I did a book in 2020 called "Reading the Hindu and Christian Classics," and uh, why and how deep learning still matters. And I was making the case there, uh, kind of against the grain, I think, to some extent, about why we in the 21st century need to go back and read the great texts again and study them, uh, both in our own traditions and traditions around us, why this is all very important. Um, and, And a great sense of confidence I have about the importance of this kind of study. I was also aware, though, that this, in a sense, was a book in which I was saying these things with a great sense of confidence, but not really saying much about myself. Uh, Who is Francis Xavier Clooney such that he thinks these things about text, and why is he talking about text in this way? Um, I had just done another book, which, uh, by coincidence, uh, came out last year also, uh, Western Jesuit Scholars in India. And it's 15 essays that I had written over the past 35 years collected in one volume uh, found from obscure journals and so on like that in some cases. Looking back at the 500, almost 500 year history of Jesuits in India and what those Western scholars, I wasn't writing about the Indian Jesuits, but mainly Western scholars, what was the encounter about? Uh, What was it from the 16th century to the 21st century studying encountering, engaging Hindu-Christian conversation and the like. And in looking at that, it it struck me that in some ways, um, oddly, because I am a Western Jesuit who studies India, looking at a period that has closed and that this great period of the Western scholarly religious study of India is kind of over with. So it struck me on both levels, both in terms of the 2020 book, reading the Hindu and Christian classics and my confidence in the study and needing to say more autobiographically about that. And then also in terms of looking back over the past 500 years, where are we now when it comes to this kind of Hindu-Christian exchange and so on, needing to say more about that and, and what I would think would be the future. I would just add two other points. I mean, one would be um, then suddenly um, 2020 happened. Um, 2020, 21, um, this weird past year, uh, the crisis, the pandemic, 
um, you know, terrible suffering, terrible loss of life everywhere in the globe. And sadly, right now in India, above all places, uh, terrible losses going on. But all of us, it forced us, even if we're healthy and well, um, to stop and think. Everything came to a stop and we're, you know, not traveling, teaching only on Zoom. Everything kind of goes to a standstill. That is a great moment for introspection, like what is this all about and why am I doing this? Coupled with, sadly, in the United States, uh, you know, racial tensions, um, Black Lives Matter, realizing the deep injustice embedded in our cultural social system and saying, are we able to do something about this? And then does my scholarship have any effect on that? Does it relate to that in any way, this crisis? And the environmental crisis and the fairly awful political situation also in the United States uh, with an unreconciled former president who still thinks he claims at least to think he is president and the breakdown of civil discourse. So these kind of you know, retrospective on my own work and then the crises in our country, crises in our world. And then on top of that, the last thing I'll say just to get started is I turned 70 last summer. Um, and that may be an age when, uh, you know, what is the calendar matter, but nonetheless an age in which you say, okay, what is this added up to? Uh, what have I done with myself all these years? And then however many years I have left, you know, who knows how many years of health and productivity one has in light of all these past years, what are the next years going to be like? So all of this kind of weaving together in terms of thinking about what I've done, why I do it, and why, if it matters, it matters in the 21st century. So all of that's kind of swirling around in my head, and that's perhaps the kind of thing we can talk about. Well, there's a number of themes there that strike me as pertinent and themes that press up against my own life and work in this um, bizarrely unprecedented but fulfilling path as a, uh, an online educator of Indian wisdom traditions and uh, self-employed academic and yada, yada, yada. But um, at the crux of, of what you're talking about, there seems to be this this interplay between experience, embodied, personal, subjective, spiritual uh, experience and our objects of study. And while it's counter to, counterintuitive to everybody outside of our discipline, um, 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 uh, very much it's not within our discipline that, that there is this sort of uh, demarcation between a scholar and a practitioner, however artificial and emic or versus an edict perspective. And this is something that we touch on in a number of interviews. Part of the reason why I decided to innovate here and, and, and launch the Life Wisdom podcast is because I have the mixed blessing of having been born an old man, and I'm slowly starting to feel my age. <laughs> Not to not to undermine the fine education of the school of hard knocks that was required for me to learn what I needed to learn at least this time around, but <laughs> these are questions. These are really important questions that that you yeah. seem to be really um, really way ahead of a curve from my perspective. Um, the extent to which uh, um, um, scholars should include their own personal insights and experiences, the extent to which scholarship should engage what's happening in the world around you, the this just seems to be so um, against the grain of the way the ivory tower has functioned for decades. Would you agree with that? I think uh, yes and no. I mean, I think on the one hand, um, 
When I think back to when I started going to academic conferences back in the mid-1980s and the like, there's actually more comfort now with talking about autobiography and the like than there was then. So it's, it's not as counterintuitive because I think for 100 years or more, scholars, the, the academy had tried to say, let us depersonalize it, let us neutralize it, let us make it uh, totally objective so that we don't have to have the intrusion of people's biases and prejudices and so on. And I think in the past 30, 40 years, uh, we've become more comfortable again with the idea, well, that's inevitable, that's going to happen. And therefore, if we you know, face up to it, then we need, you know, we do better by, rather than by pretending that we're totally neutral. But what I think is also at stake, the other side of it would be, uh, my perception is in the academy today, you know, you still have scholars who want total objectivity as if the study of religion was one of the hard sciences or something like that. You have others who say, well, because it's autobiographical and because it's personal and embodied, therefore it's all about embodiment. It's all about social location. It's all about power. It's all about relationships. And, and things written by people long ago become increasingly irrelevant because they lived then and there, and we are now contesting these realities here. So on the one, so it's, it's kind of an awkward position to be seeing different trends toward neutrality, objectivity, on the other hand, extreme subjectivity, and trying to say, well, in the middle of that, there are those of us who believe that in the 21st century, we can take up traditions of learning and make them, allow them to make a difference where we are. So I think it's counterintuitive to some extent, but it's fighting different battles with different trends in our society. So tell us about what you're currently working on in terms of this autobiographical impulse. Like what's currently on your desk, so to speak? Well, I've been, I've been collecting materials and, um, you know, reading, first of all, reading books about autobiography, philosophical autobiography, theological autobiography. I've been puttering with people's autobiographies of a philosophical sort. Um, like for instance, I've found fascinating, perhaps you've read it, Bertrand Russell's autobiography, a multi-volume work that he wrote for various reasons uh, late in life. Um, the um, going back to Goethe or somebody like that a few couple of hundred years ago, writing his the story of his life, only getting partway through his life. Uh, the great British historian Collingwood, looking at his autobiography, um, interviews with scholars like Hans-Georg Gadamer and the like, uh, looking at people who write about their lives when they're scholars and writers, and then uh, seeing, in some cases, interviews with them about who were you when you were a young person? Who are you at middle age? Who are you later in life? How do you think about these things? So kind of trying to be inspired by these examples. Uh, that's one thing I've been doing. I've also been, you know, this may seem really narcissistic, but uh, kind of taking into account my own work. Uh, both, um, you know, I think the first thing I published in a, a magazine was in 1978. So it was like the official entree onto the stage with a little article. Uh, I think it was about the 30th anniversary of the assassination of Gandhi. I wrote about that and why we should care about that in 1978. But I also went back and found, um, interestingly, probably only to me, uh, some of my college papers I found and um, papers from grad school that for some reason I had saved in the pre-computer stage of life and have these you know, yellowing papers in a file and so on like that looking to see where is, do I have a voice? 
is there a, is there a constant voice, you know, from being right 30 years old, 40 years old, 50, 60, 70, and doing different things at different institutions? Is there kind of a consistent voice that I have over the generations uh, of my own life? And, and trying to tease that out, um, saying, you know, if you look at my CV in terms of simply the content, uh, you could read some Some people may be interested in a few things in it and the other people, a few other things in it, but what does it add up to? And why did I do all of the things I did? Trying to go back and find out earlier in my life what I thought as a young man I was looking for um, and what issues were passionately concerning me in my twenties and then going from there. And so I've been kind of, you know, organizing the material, have different documents and different piles and so on as I'm beginning to put it together. And I'm not quite sure how to write it, but, um, you know, it, it would be very boring and probably of interest possibly only to me if I was interested, uh, you know, to think about the circumstances under which I wrote my various books and what is it that prompted me to do this and then to do that and back and forth. But I'm sort of reacquainting myself with who I've been over my scholarly career in order to kind of consolidate it and come up with a sense of why did it matter then? Does it matter now? Such that there'd be any justification for me to, to do another book or another article, um, you know, looking at the years I have ahead of me. So a lot of it at the moment is retrospective, but also being inspired by examples of people who've written what are to me compelling autobiographies. It sounds like you're at a very important checkpoint in your life journey. Um, I can't help but ask, uh, upon examination, uh, you, know, uh, you know, almost as if you were outside of yourself, upon examination of this, of this, um, this author named Clooney, um, what, uh, so what have you come up with? What, uh, are there discernible patterns? Is there a consistent voice? Like, you know, have you begun making sense of, 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 of the survey of your previous mm. works? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's not finished. Um, but where I am at the moment, I would, I would look at it in two different ways. And, and you know, everybody, anyone who knows my work at all would know there are, you know, three elements that pop up in my work a lot. One is, you might say, simply Hindu studies, South Asian studies, more of a classical sort. So I work on some Sanskrit texts, Vedanta, Mimamsa. Uh, some Tamil texts, particularly in the Sri Vaishnava tradition. So I'm always kind of circling around resources of, of those traditions and going back to them and reading new texts and so on like that. So that, that keeps coming along. Uh, this, the second thing would be that uh, given my background and training before I ever got into South Asian studies, there's always this kind of element of, of Christian theology. You know, again, the classical traditions, the so-called great tradition, uh, you know, for me as a Roman Catholic, the medievals, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, Anselm, other such figures, there is always an edge that I'm not simply and never wanted to be simply a scholar of Hindu studies or South Asian studies, even though my PhD is in South Asian studies, University of Chicago. There's always this kind of theological element and it's sort of you know, coming from a theological perspective going heavy duty into learning the other tradition with no, you know, trying to you know, root out prejudices and biases and then coming back. And that opens up the element of being a comparativist of a certain sort. So I, I think, you know, the sense of um, doing Hindu and South Asian studies, but not only that, 
uh, being a Catholic theologian, but not only that, uh, being a comparativist, not simply for the improvement of comparative methodology or the nature of the history of religions or something, but rather using kind of very simple images of, of going from where you are, crossing over to the other and crossing back, crossing back and forth. So those are the you know, three strands, the, the, the Hindu studies, the theological, the comparative. But then I'll just add one other layer of it, which is a little bit more personal, um, is realizing that for me, the study has always been, first of all, very personal. That as a student and as a scholar, I never, I've tried never to treat the text I read and the topics I consider in a uh, consumerist fashion where I simply you know, dive into somebody's Sanskrit text or this Sri Vaishnava text in order to prove a point in the Western Academy. But I've always found that uh, these texts are compelling in their invitation to participation. They're written out of, usually the ones I read, out of a religious perspective, they pull me in. And, and not kind of um, you know, abusing the trust in the sense that it's given to me by, by having it in, in words that I can read or study with a teacher when I was much younger, um, believing that it's a matter of student and scholar as committed and getting involved in that which one studies. Um, so there's that element. The other side of it, and I, I think I haven't written about this much, uh, and, but it's, it's related to what I just said, is the fact that I, I am a Roman Catholic priest and I am a Jesuit. And what does that mean? And I, I think I realize in some ways that it's given me a different perspective on what it means to read, what the book is, what it means to speak about what you write in two particular ways. One would be uh, preaching. So priests preach, um, would preach at mass on Sunday and the like. And it's always been a matter of, there is the text and you know, for, for mass on Sunday in a Catholic tradition, it's gonna be readings from the Bible. But it's never a matter of like New Testament studies or Hebrew Bible studies in kind of the philological sense. It's always a conviction that the word that is read, proclaimed by a reader that day, is alive in the congregation. It's a word that makes a difference. And the preacher's job is not to give his or her opinions about current events or politics or uh, academe, whatever, but rather to help that to clear the space so that that word really does come alive. And so realizing all these years preaching, uh, I've been preaching since 1977, almost every Sunday, so it adds up a lot after a while, that it's a matter of being a vehicle of bringing a word to life and letting it be alive. And, and that way of, of seeing, it's not that the ancient text is somehow a, you know, a, an alternative to living in the 20th and 21st century, but you go back to biblical texts, and by analogy, Greek texts, um, Roman classical texts, Sanskrit texts, Tamil texts, Chinese texts, and so on. You go back there not because you want to live there instead of here, but rather because you believe that there's a way that these can be brought to life and spoken again. The other side of it would be, of, of the priest thing, would be at the Mass is also the, um, the, 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 the ritual at the altar where saying certain prayers in certain ways over bread and wine bring about a sacramental reality. And I think, again, for me, it, it doesn't have to do with, does anyone, you know, you have to be Catholic to believe some of that, but rather that, that words have power to make things sacred. And that words, therefore, are not simply 
you know, words about things that are unchanged or outside language, but rather there's this kind of back and forth between embodied material reality and the words we say about it that somehow bring to life the things we, we say we believe. So I realize that those elements of taking all of that for granted as a priest coming together with taking my scholarship very personally has been an interesting chemistry, not simply that he's a priest on Sundays and he's a scholar during the week, but that the priest and the scholar are kind of mixing with one another, affecting one another all the time. And um, so that, that's, you know, that, those are the more, you know, the, the sense of, of situating myself that I think I've been trying to get deeper into at the current moment. Yeah, there's a number of really interesting themes there. Um, when you look at, for example, traditional uh, Indian parampara transmission, it's sort of a tripod uh, where it's incomplete without a teacher and a student in a text. And there's something to be said about the emphasis on it being spoken aloud and heard aloud and living. And the text is something that, that breathes through the life of tradition, through the bodies of the people who are um, transmitting it or drawing on it, elucidating it. Um, uh, the wisdom seems to be something that's alive, right? At least the text that you're interested in, both as a theologian and as a, a scholar of South Asian tradition, these texts are aimed at a transformation more than information. They're, they're calling you, they're inviting you into some experience, some intimacy, some dance. They're, they're sort of, uh, they're, 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 they're musical scores, right? Mm. They're, they're, they're inviting you to some kind of melody or performance or dance. And that's, um, you know, just to refocus to the, the major aim of the podcast, I'm curious to, to understand, you know, um, what has stayed with you as, what has struck you as, as wise or what has facilitated sort of life wisdom in terms of either your study of uh, whatever tradition you wish to draw on or whatever text, you know, what, what has, what has this rich experience impressed upon you um, with respect to, to life wisdom? Uh, let me say one thing about what you just said, which was so interesting to me about the parampara and so on. And then I'll, I'll answer the question you just asked. Absolutely. Is that um, I think it was really, really important for me as, as many of us, you know, when we're younger, we go and spend, at least in my generation, we used to go and spend time in India. We'd, um, you know, uh, get a grant and go and work with a pundit in Mylapur or other cities and, uh, the ritual of you know making contacts and going to their house and then sitting with them and then trying to cross language barriers and figure out how things work was far more than simply staying in Chicago, the Reagan Library, grabbing the book off the shelf and just sitting in my room in Hyde Park and reading it. That the whole new dynamic of sitting at the feet of a teacher who was gracious enough to work with me made a big difference and then going to discourses and seeing how you know young people older people spend their lives sitting at the feet of teachers and learning and reciting the text and passing them down and realizing again as, as i said earlier in a different way that all of this is a sense of instructing us on how to think about how to learn these materials that again it's, it's not simply printed books that somehow are there in the midst of a changing world but there's kind of a stubborn persistence about the needing to have that, as you say, personal intergenerational contact, uh, the wisdom being personified and passed down to new people, 
who are going to live their lives in a different way, not only from teachers a thousand years ago, but then their teacher of a generation before. So it's all very alive. And then realizing suddenly I find myself in the classroom at Harvard or previously at Boston College. What do I think I'm doing? You know, I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not a traditional um, monastic Christian teacher, and I'm not a, uh, certainly not a pundit of any sort, but rather the idea that in the classroom, that living connection with students and figuring out how to make this knowledge come alive for them is another example of the parampara, that it's not simply degree getting, get, you know, do these courses, get these grades, get the degree, and then move on. But there's this kind of personal connection that I think um, is very important. So all of that, I think, comes to life for me um, out of the words that you said. Having said all that, I, I think I blanked for a moment on what was the question you asked me? No, it, it's organic, much like the wisdom and the text about which we're speaking in this conversation lives. And it's the power yeah. of, of just responding to each other in the moment, because that's that's what a real conversation is. Um, and now I feel inspired to, to, to share with you. It's the same with me when I uh, lead tutorials at the OCHS or I get um, um, undergrad contracts every now and then or teach adults online. The, 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 in some spaces, you're teaching from within a tradition. Someone's coming and saying, I want to learn how to use these texts in my life. But irrespective of that, whenever you're teaching about these traditions, as opposed, whenever you're learning about them rather than from them, nevertheless, there is, um, uh, the, even when I teach, um, anywhere I teach, I think it's that parampara piece that it comes with me as a, a methodology not as content, but my job is to reach these people where they are and to facilitate a realization of what this tradition is about. And it's taken me a bit of time to realize, it hit me like a ton of bricks just a couple of weeks ago, that maybe it's obvious, I don't know, but for me, uh, it hit me that scholarship for me is about teaching. Publishing is about teaching. Mm-hmm. Speaking is about teaching. It hit me like a ton of bricks that all these things I enjoy doing, why do I enjoy doing them? Because I can serve as a bridge between knowledge and someone else's understanding. And in so doing, only learn from the students, only learn uh, more deeply about the very thing that I'm professing to know something about. And it's just, um, just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, oh, it's all teaching for you. That's why you enjoy this stuff. So, like it was, um, and teaching is human interaction for me. There has to be some kind of, live dynamic piece uh, a very short anecdote i was um i had uh nick sutton the from continuing studies at the oxford center for hindu studies on my podcast about a year ago just to help promote their courses that i discovered because i'm in this ridiculous situation of producing a lot of online content but not consuming any of it i don't really know the courses out there so i had him on the podcast <laughs> our first conversation and after he says you know why don't you tutor for us why don't you come in and teach some courses for us i'm like sure why not so i start the courses and without asking anybody's permission i said you know what these students need a live zoom tutorial so i just decided to implement live zoom tutorials there and now a year later they're implementing them across the board mm-hmm. and for me that's something that has to do with just the as you say standing in front of a room full of students and responding to their yeah. needs feeding off of their energy it's really powerful yeah um 
what did I ask you before? Oh, I was asking about, it's very vast. So really just feel free to dip your toe in wherever you like. But, you know, what what wisdom have you learned from these texts that you study, either from one tradition or the other, or something common to both? You know, it's very open-ended in terms of um, um, practical life wisdom or, or kernels of insights that have been impressed upon you through your rich study of these texts. I think um, with either my own Catholic tradition or, again, Vedanta or Sri Vaishnava tradition, there is a sense, you know, and, and to put it in very standard, very obvious words, that there is sort of the pratyaksha anumana element of experience and reasoning. But if these are religious texts, there's also the shruti, the revelation, some other element that comes into play that is only known through the transmission and the tradition that can be truly transformative of the world. I think both uh, my Catholic tradition and, and the traditions in India I've studied want to give that claim a really hard time by saying, if you don't perceive properly, if you don't use your senses properly, if you don't pay attention to the world around you properly, if you can't think properly, you can't just uh, get off easy by saying, I'm appealing to revelation or something like that. So it's it's a you know get do revelation only when other means have been exhausted, but then there is a sense of the fact that these traditions um, become so crucial because there's a living kernel of truth within them, either in terms of what God is like or what one should do with one's life as a good person, or why risk yourself for the sake of people in need, or what kind of knowledge breaks through the darkness and sets you free. All of these things are, are really not simply common sense. They're not simply what everybody believes anyway. And while I have great respect for students and others who are spiritual but not religious, the spiritual without the religious can often be undisciplined in terms of breaking through the standard stereotypes we happen to have in the generation in which we live. So I, I think what I've, I've learned by reading you know, I'm thinking of reading the, the um, let's say, the Upanishads and some of the Mahavakyas, the Tattvamasya, Hum Brahmasmi, those kinds of passages or the teachings of Yajnavalkya or certain passages like in the Gospel according to John in the New Testament, where these words, if you take them seriously and take them to heart, they are meant to, in a sense, knock you out of your seat. Or, you know, if you're sitting on the floor, knock you over or something like that. But to ba basically to say, if you really understand this, you can no longer live your life the way you have been living it. Um, and you have to go through, you know, to use Christian terminology, some kind of a letting go, a surrender, even a death experience in order to break away from the confines of what you thought you were previously and, and to move forward. And so I, I think text, um, you know, either the written text, the printed text, or ideally the text is passed down in a tradition are actually, um, you might say, dangerous objects because they, they really do change things. They want to make the world different. And the vehicle of making it different is, you know, they have a reader and then they catch the reader and the reader can't get away, it comes in. I remember, uh, you know, in several of his Upanishadic commentaries, Shankara, uh, talking a bit, what does the word Upanishad mean? And he discusses, well, it does mean the book, and it does mean certain kind of esoteric knowledge. But he has a, a derivation that I can't repeat or I can't remember properly at the moment about kind of cutting through ignorance, that the point of this is an instrument of, of blowing up the 
ignorance that you've been living with and then suddenly to showing you you have to live differently. And I think while there are you know, tons of doctrines that are different between Christian and Advaita or uh, Catholic and Sri Vaishnava, there are you know, different doctrines that may seem to be quite far apart. What the common ground is, is that if you only live your life by the five senses, if you only live your life by what you can reason to, you're not going to be freed from the conventions of your time and place. And, and that's why the traditional learning, the sequence of teachers, the power of the revelation matters because these traditions, and one could talk about in Islam or Judaism or Confucianism or Buddhism, the same kind of rupturing of ordinary reality by allowing yourself to take seriously the wisdom of the past. You know, this rupturing of ordinary reality, as you put it, you know, this is palpable to me in moments, whether engaging in certain texts or practice, whether we want to call that the numinous or the sacred, which are very sort of passe words or concepts mm -hmm. in our discipline, yet they're palpable to any practitioner. And, an, and for an advanced practitioner or not even a practitioner, for an advanced seeker or an experience or whatever word we want to use, it's palpable that, um, for lack of a better word or better word, the divine or the sacred are both the underpinning of all things and erupt in more manifest ways and more manifest times. A great example in, in, in your in your vocation, obviously, would be during the Mass, right? During, uh, during the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I would love to ask you a question that's... Um, so, clearly, it seems that the... The, 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 the distinction between scholars and practitioners has obviously softened. I thank you for engaging that provocative question at the outset, but yes, it's obviously softening and there's obviously much more space for scholar practitioners than before. Do you, do you feel that those who teach religion, I mean, in, in non-confessional settings, do you feel that they should be those who have been touched by it in some way? Do you feel that, um, I don't know, how shall I phrase it? Um, does it necessarily make you more capable of, of better teaching religion um, if the life of practice informs that in some way? I think it's a, a layered thing. I, I think, um, you know, in general, I think, I think we would agree the teachers, you know, I remember from secondary school and college and grad school, were those who were, you know, passionately caught up in what they were teaching. And, um, and there's a certain sense in which, you know, if you have the whole person in the classroom, you realize that's why we have classes, because you have this wise person of an older generation who's engaging you is really, really powerful. So that, I think, is a, a starting point, that, that one has this sense of um, the person, you know, making a difference. But I would say the two levels would be, you know, a, a good teacher in some sense has to be able to be skillful in stepping away from the material in order to be like acutely objective about it. Uh, because sometimes, you know, in, in the enthusiasm of the moment, you can start talking about a text and you can talk about, you know, Vedanta, yoga, uh, the gospel of John, whatever, in, in passionate terms. And then you realize if you come back down to earth and actually say, now where in the text does it say that? Um, or what did the author mean and her his time and place about that? Often it can lead to, a, uh, again, a different kind of rupture, like, do you know what you're talking about? And you know, have you studied the material carefully? 
And so that kind of objectivity is really important where if I'm reading a gospel passage, let's say with a student, or if I'm reading a Sri Vaishnava text with a student at Harvard, and there are critical questions come up that um, show that there are incompatibilities or problems or historical puzzles in the text. I would be a very bad teacher if I kind of if, you know, just covered them over and said, oh, don't worry about that. That's all not important because the main thing is blah, blah, blah. And I'll say something inspiring to you. You have to be able to deal with the nitty gritty of critical scholarship um, as best we can. But on the other hand, if it's only critical scholarship, and I've seen this operative in, in many an academic setting, you end up being um, a kind of a deconstructionist in the bad sense, where you can take things apart and do the archaeology, but you don't have any good message or narrative about why would we care about this? Why does it matter? Um, you, know, you end up being a specialist in something from the first century or the third century or the fifth century in some part of the world, and you've stripped away all the varnish and all the romanticism about it, but you haven't put it back together. And I think this, you know, amusingly, not amusingly, but seriously, but ironically, I find this to be the case for in biblical studies. Um, the vast amount of, of study that is done of those rel very, relatively very small New Testament, let's say. And, and the justification of that and the many journals and the many, many books and new commentary series all the time and all that, unless there's a, a good storyline there about like, why does this matter? Um, it's not going to really pay off anymore. And, and so on the one hand, you know, the scholars have done incredibly good work about putting the Bible back in its historical context and stripping away mythology about it. But on the other hand, unless the story is told, it no longer is obvious that people should read, you know, this little book anymore. And the same with the Bhagavad Gita or the same with the Buddhist Sutta. Um, the ability to take it apart and to be unromantic about the traditions and then the ability with a certain passion and enthusiasm to say, and I care about this and I'd like to help you care about this because if we get back into it again with our eyes open, it can be transformative. And so therefore it has to be, you know, in a sense, the discipline of a deep personal moment where it's just the facts. And then the second moment is, and now it still matters because, and you have to have that second element as well as the first, I think. I find it so profound that with very different experiences and very different contexts, we've arrived at, um, from what I can hear, precisely the same methodology in teaching, where um, critical thinking maybe yeah, at large might be difficult to find, not, the, not at the academy. Um, people who are moved or passionate or spiritual is not hard to find, but to find a paradigm where both can coexist yeah. and students really respond well to that. And they, <laughs> in my experience, really, this is, that's the sweet spot. It's difficult to arrive at that. And, you know, we all have different abilities and gifts and, and it's much easier to do one or the other typically, but to, to interrogate a tradition and bring in history and critical theory and understand, you know, um, the sociocultural causes that gave rise to this, this movement. And at the same time, okay, we're studying the mechanics of the musical instrument. Okay, we're studying music theory, but are you tone deaf? Do you know melody? Mm -hmm. Do you, is it, this is much more than just the notes on the page. We can't forget that as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, just literally the notes on the page. I mean, I, I, I'm not gifted musically at all. But if one becomes a world expert on, like, say, the, you know, the scores of Beethoven or the scores of Bach places, but you, you never actually perform them, you've actually never listened to them, you just are expert on what's on the page, that would be very a sad element. It, it hasn't ever come to life. Um, I'm thinking as you talk, I mean, yeah, we, uh, maybe there are you know, not two, but three elements involved. And this go back to what I said earlier. On the one hand, there is you know, the use of the rational inquiring mind and not um, you know, confining it by academic or church doctrines or whatever. You know, let it think and ask every question without holding back. The second element, which I think you were just saying very well, and I was trying to say about you know the, the passion, why this matters, how it makes a difference, but the the you know the embodiment idea that we're not we're not doing this. In fact, in seven hundred you know seven hundred years ago or two thousand years ago, um, it matters acutely in our cultures where we live. Um, are you in a male body, a female body? What color is your skin? What is your economic status? Where in the city do you live? And I think you know the, the crises of, of health and social justice around us are also saying to us, you, you know, you can't live in that ivory tower either, where you're simply the monastic, and I don't mean you, I mean me, maybe, who, you know, who's simply doing this work that is so scholar practitioner-like, without locating yourself in terms of where you are in terms of benefits, advantages, power, and so on. So like okay, body, mind, and soul all have to come into play. And I think that, you know, that is in a sense what's needed for credibility. That's a beautiful thought um, upon which to uh, conclude a discussion today, as I know you have a commitment shortly before we formally conclude. Was there anything else you wanted to say or share? I think... Um, what I would add in, in terms of, you know, I'm anticipating um, either a very long article or a, a not too long book, kind of a, I'm calling it, you know, tongue in cheek and the autobiography of my CV. Um, basically, I'm uh, putting the person to go with the things I've written. And I think why this is important, it's kind of a pitch, you know, if you can possibly do it, get older at some point. Um, it enables you to say, I have certain values, I have certain questions. And the, you know, if you're given the gift of being, you know, in good and sound mind and healthy enough body, when, as I do, you read 70, you can begin to like, look at your life over time and say, well, when I was 20, when I was 30, when I was 50, when I was 60, and you have the advantage of not lamenting the fact that I'm getting old, but rather saying, I've lived long enough that I can take advantage and look back and see myself. And then by extension, of course, the traditions that of which we are part over you know much much longer periods of time, that time becomes a teacher too. Um, the early, the middle, the later phases, what you're capable of when you're young, what you're capable of or incapable of when you're older. So just the advantage of this, and you know, if, even if a listener was 22 years old or 42 years old, to be able to say, begin to be conscious of how you have changed over the decades and be aware that time as a teacher, just as place, just as text, just as experience of other sorts. All of that, I think, I guess would be part of it. They, you know, the history of oneself is a gift also. Thank you for your words of wisdom. Thank you for asking insightful questions and as always, <laughs> being a wonderful interviewer.
I had the easy job, I assure you. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. Um, so for those of you listening out there in the timeless time of podcast land on the internet, we have been speaking uh, with Dr. Francis Xavier Clooney, who is Parkman Professor of Divinity and Professor of Comparative Theology at Harvard Divinity School, and has also been a, a practicing a Jesuit priest for 50 years or so. Um, you will have access to his uh, his profile and links in the podcast notes. Uh, until next time, um, stay safe, stay well, keep listening, and keep contemplating the transformative power of ancient texts. Take care.